Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine through conversations with researchers and scientists. This is our last episode of season three, but don't worry, we are getting ready to launch season four, and we will be uncovering a new brand for the show, and we have a lot of fascinating episodes coming up. If you're finding value in this show, I would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at cannabis underscore science underscore today. And I would also be so grateful if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Today, we are featuring Pam Miles and Dr. Cindy Orser, who are the visionaries behind Apothecare Advocacy and Research, an organization that partners with scientists to promote advances in women's health products and pharmaceuticals. Dr. Orser was on our very first episode, Terpenes Are King, and she is back with Pam Miles to share what they have learned from research, testing the safety and efficacy of over 30 intimate care products, some of which contain THC and CBD. We discuss vaginal suppositories, sexual enhancement products, washes and douches, and their effects on the vaginal microbiome. They offer some really critical warnings about some of the harmful chemicals found in feminine care washes. So very important to hear that. And on the brighter side, they also share some promising, although not quite proven, research about the potential application of cannabis compounds like CBD to be used for different women's health issues like pelvic pain and candida. Well, Pam and Cindy, first of all, thank you so much for for joining us on this episode. And before we get into to the science and um, you know the journey, Pam, I'd love to start with you. And why did you decide to start Apothecare? Oh, so Emily, I decided to start Apothecare because in 2016, recreational cannabis was legalized in Massachusetts, where I'm from. And I started to look at how cannabis could be used for the remediation of uh, pelvic pain. And I, you know, grew my own product. I made my own concoctions, I would say at that point in my kitchen, but I couldn't find any science to show that the products were safe. Like there really wasn't any peer reviewed literature. In fact, at that time, I even went to my local cannabis testing lab and asked them a bunch of questions and they didn't have any answers either, um, you know, just because the whole thing was really new. So we realized that there was um, a lack of peer-reviewed scientific data and even lab testing data on the safety of these products. Use. And then we, we actually learned that it wasn't just cannabis products that weren't tested for safety on the vaginal microbiota, but it was also a lot of intimate care products. And because there's a proliferation of cannabis products on the market now um, for intimate care that are unregulated, untested and under-researched, we started Apothecare. And um, we're so lucky to have scientific people like Dr. Cindy Orser working with us. So when you say intimate care products, what do you mean? Could you be more specific? Sure. So that covers a gamut of anything that is used um, you know, in the vaginal area, um, we're talking about like washes and douches, but in the cannabis area, a lot of people are using, we're considering intimate care products um, in a, in the sexual enhancement industry. So there are a lot of products out there that are being, that are being toted as 
uh, sexual products. And then there are also suppositories that people are using for the relief of pelvic pain. And those are products that you're actually inserting into your body that have very little uh, scientific data on them. Okay. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and then I understand um, from kind of doing a little research on your background that originally you wanted to, um, because people were using these products, you wanted to test whether they were working on people, but you weren't able to get the um, the approval. Is that correct? Yeah. So, it, you know, and again, we started this in, in just after 2016. And at that time, and still cannabis is federally illegal in the U.S. So, Big research institutions that take federal dollars are very reluctant in many cases to take on projects that involve cannabis. And even though we've recently passed some legislature in the U.S. to enhance cannabis research, it's still an area where we're lacking a lot of information. In fact, Cindy and I were looking today for some research, we for peer-reviewed research on how cannabis circulates in the body when it's introduced uh, annually. And we can't find any peer-reviewed work. So we really need to do more research. And that's why we that's why we started. Okay. So yeah, so let's move, let's move into um the research that, that research project that you're working on. And um maybe Cindy, you could tell us more about this. But it sounds like were you actually able to recreate the conditions of a vaginal microbiome like in a laboratory in, in a petri dish? Well, we're not quite to that point, even though that is one of our goals. And we do have a collaborator at Baylor Medical uh, University that has a simulated mini bioreactor um, uh, for the vag vagina. Uh, so that that is the goal. And there actually are about eight specific microbiome types associated. Uh, with the vagina, they differ by uh, ethnicity and demographics. Um, so we started it out with a very simple approach, which is uh, looking at the impact of these products on the four dominant lactobacilli species that are associated with a healthy uh, vagina. And those are all... Um, you know, straight from the literature. I mean, it's it's actually shocking, Emily, that we've known since the 1980s that these uh, species of lactobacilli um, are important to maintain the low pH uh, through the production of lactic acid as well as hydrogen peroxide. They also produce bacteriosins. So they're really sentinel species to keep out both invader bacteria as well as as viruses. I mean, it's just really blew me away. I mean, before I met Pam and got uh, involved in her quest, um, I was unaware of how much uh, information was out there in the scientific literature. Um, for example, and, uh, and, and, and largely this work has come out of some universities in Europe um, and a lot of the studies were done in Africa, and um, there are actually um, data supporting that if these beneficial lactobacilli species are not present in the vagina, that the woman is more susceptible to HIV infection, 
HPV infection, and of course, then passing the, those viruses on to their partners. So, so we started out very simplistic approach. We just developed uh, assays, uh, qPCR assays, as well as just following the growth of the bacteria, all in vitro, looking at the impact of either products or ingredients in products. And, and we were originally interested, and as Pam said, uh, from her early uh, kitchen experiments about the cannabinoids, particularly CBD and THC. Again, in the literature, there's lots of uh, evidence that in particular CBD has antimicrobial activity. So now that we see an entire new um, slew of products that are on the market that have CBD in them, and some of them CBD and THC directed at women uh, for either pelvic pain, sexual loops for arousal, we were very concerned to see, you know, are these products uh, disrupting the microflora. And, and so that was really the impotence to get this all off the ground. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so you developed, so you developed the screening assays. That was kind of the first step. Um, right. And yeah, I would love to hear before we get into the effects of THC and CBD, what did you find when you were testing the intimate care products out on the market without cannabinoids? Pam, do you want to summarize that? Um, yeah. So we found that uh, washes are really detrimental to the microbiota. In fact, what we started to do is we went out like an old-fashioned consumer reporter. We, we bought a bunch of products on the market and we analyzed them for their cannabinoid contents uh, and then uh, the non-cannabis products. And then we just tested them to see what would happen. And we found that in most cases, the products that were most detrimental were these products that were uh, designed as washes. And in some cases, the same products are used internally. Um, so that's what we found with the products that are not cannabis-based. And we also learned that these products in other countries are widely used off-label as well. So we just tested within this last week, um, one of the compounds of these washes, it's called sodium lauryl sulfate. Now you're probably familiar with it because it's in a lot of shampoos. And now there's a whole marketing campaign that many shampoo companies have taken SLS out of their product, but it's still in these intimate care washes. And, you know, Cindy can weigh in here more on the real scientific data, but it's detrimental to the lactobacillus, almost as detrimental as using a really strong broad spectrum antibiotic. So we're very concerned about the use of SLS in these products. Oh, wow. Yes, I, I've heard that anecdotally. I've heard that anecdotally that those products can be pretty detrimental, but but to have the research and to have that data saying that it's killing this good and necessary bacteria is, it's really scary that those products are just sold, you know, at the drugstore, everywhere you, you go. Yeah, yes. and and they're they're categorized as cosmetics, so there's absolutely no requirement for safety testing. They can just 
appear on your drugstore shelf. Same thing for these CBD products, as you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and now I understand that you've also tested over over 30 products, and a lot of these do contain THC and CBD. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about what are the effects of of cannabis, um, especially in these, you know, these different types of cannabinoids on the, the vaginal microbiome. Yeah, so I have to, you know, throw out some caveats here because of the fact that we're doing in vitro testing. And if anything, for me as a scientist, it has just raised more unanswered questions. And it revolves around bioavailability, right? Because cannabinoids are oils and um we don't know what the bioavailability is. And in, in fact, um, I just sent Pam this morning. I mean, there are companies that are just now trying to get approval to look at bioavailability. And if you put a CBD or THC suppository in your vagina, you know, how much of that uh, active ingredient ends up in the body or does any of it end up in the bloodstream and as you know emily in this industry um it's just so anecdotal and people just providing their own personal experience about whether or not they have any psychoactive effect from these products in a suppository form but um what we can say is that the formulation definitely is uh, is important uh, in the evaluation. So now there are water-soluble forms of CBD and we have tested those and those appear to be safe. Um, some of the other, you know, there's full, full spectrum, broad spectrum. We don't even know unless we have them tested in a cannabis testing lab, which, you know, luckily we have access to because of my association with Clip Labs, and we can have these products tested for both their cannabinoid spectrum and their uh, terpene. But there are also other secondary metabolic uh, compounds uh, present in these. So it's it's very complex. I don't think um, either one of us feels confident saying emphatically that um, CBD is either antimicrobial or not, even though there are patents out there patenting it to be an antimicrobial. I think Colgate uh, bought one of those patents and plans to add it to mouthwash or toothpaste, um, which brings up, you know, a whole Another interesting um, extension, which uh, it is in the literature that uh, CBD's pleiotrophic mechanism of interaction with the body is to intercalate into into the membrane of cells. And by doing so, it disrupts a lot of the organization of the membrane, which actually renders um, in in the example of Immersa, uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, it renders it sensitive to antibiotics. So <clears throat> it seems like co-administration of CBD with antibiotics actually 
makes antibiotics effective, whereas without the presence of the CBD disrupting the membrane and allowing the antibiotic to gain entry into the cell, um, these bacteria are actually resistant. Uh, and uh, so it, it just brings up a lot more questions. And that uh, interaction of CBD with the membrane also leads to disruption of cholesterol. So my other second <laughs> question I have besides bioavailability, getting inside the cell is um, disruption of uh, cholesterol homeostasis. And cholesterol, of course, is the building block for all the sex hormones. And we're very curious to know if women do use these CBD products vaginally, is it disrupting their normal hormonal levels or not? We don't know. What we do know is THC is anti-estrogenic. That activity has been demonstrated. So as in most pursuits of science, you, when you, you ask one question, you end up with three or four additional questions to the one you started out with. And cholesterol, of course, also is a precursor to bile salts. And we already know there is a gut-brain axis uh, that uh, is influenced by the endogenous endocannabinoid system and also from early failures in that diet drug that blocked CB1 receptors in the gut, uh, leading to suicidal ideation in patients who are using it. So it, I think the public's idea that CBD is totally safe and you don't have to worry about it and go ahead and have, you know, intake as much as you want um, without any consequence. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And clearly this is a consequence of the lack of federal funding to do the basic research so that we understand how all of these uh, systems are interrelated in the human body. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a lot of follow-up questions on, <laughs> on everything you just said, but but let's back up for a minute. And, and Pam, maybe this is a question for you. What, how are these? Like, what would um, what would motivate someone to use a a vaginal suppository with 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 THC or CBD? How are these? Um, what are what are these products marketed to to do and to to like how, how are they marketed to to help people? Well, you know, it's interesting because I attended a medical cannabis society uh, convention in the UK in 2017, I believe it was, or maybe it was 18, and learned that Queen Victoria had actually used cannabis suppositories for the relief of pelvic pain and menstrual cramps. Um, and if you remember way back, there was a product that uh, Whoopi and Maya um, had created a company and they were marketing products for the relief of period pain that contained CBD. Um, and so that's really where some of these products got their start. But then there have been other products that have claimed that they enhance sexual experience. Um, and again, that's that none of this has really been proven in the scientific literature. Um, so, so products are marketed as uh, to increase your sexual experience and also to relieve pelvic pain. And this is where Sydney and I sometimes differ a little bit in terms of the pelvic pain. I do believe that 
that women need new and novel therapeutics for the relief of pelvic pain, that NSAIDs and, and certainly opioids are, are not doing the job or have very horrific side effects. Um, and we've had an area of women's health that has not been explored. So um, based on the folklore and some of the the uh, the antidotal evidence, uh, people do believe that vaginally applied cannabis can be a pain reliever. And for also, um, there are products that are marketed for women who are menopausal that don't want to use hormone replacement therapy as lubricants. So, and again, I think that there is some efficacy at least antidotally, whether or not it's placebo or not, nobody knows because we just don't have any peer-reviewed scientific studies to show us. Um, and starting in the lab with the lactobacillus was really kind of our phase one. If we could show that these, these cannabinoids are not disruptive to the vaginal microbiome, then that might help us to get some of these studies moved forward in some of these um, academic institutions that have been reluctant to work with cannabis. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I am familiar with a number of cannabis products that target um, patients with endometriosis. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I'm also wondering, is there a, what is the advantage? Because especially when we, we, we talk about the vaginal microbiome, I mean, it's, it's a very, you know, it's very sensitive. So what would be the advantage of using a suppository um, versus a, you know, something, a tincture or something that you would take orally. Well, okay. especially, especially yeah. if we're talking about pain relief. Right. So again, pain relief. Yeah, there's really not a lot of scientific data here and Cindy might weigh in on this as well, but what, what the supposition is that it's being used locally. So in the, one of the reasons what we want to do these studies are called PK studies to find out how the cannabinoids circulate in your bloodstream if they're introduced vaginally. Do they stay in that area? I guess from what I understand from the OBGYNs is that it's a, the nerve plexus in this area is very, very intricate. And But is it held within that area? And are you getting localized pain relief? And it, you're not getting high from it because it's not circulating. It's not going through first pass metabolism. We just don't know those things, but that's what people are using them for. They're finding that it's localized pain relief. I mean, in Canada, where these products are sold and used, you can go on you know, Twitter and you can find that people are saying that like having an IUD inserted or removed, if they've used some of these cannabis pods or um, uh, I guess inserts people call them or suppositories is really what they are, that they are finding pain relief with the IUD insertion or removal. Um, so, so that's why you would want to use it more locally versus like a tincture or even smoking. Um, I think also there's a sustained relief, sustained relief effect. You know, the, the literature that is out there on using products vaginally show that there's a lag time for the medication to circulate in the blood system. Uh, but again, we don't have that research with cannabis and we'd really like to see some of those studies done. Right, Cindy? Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, one of the few uh, data points we have comes from a company that's making uh, organic tampons and they did a study of uh, administering uh, CBD through the tampon 
And uh, then after the woman had the tampon for a specific period of time and they took it out and then they extracted how much CBD was still in the tampon and their estimate was only 2% of the active was not present in the tampon. And so the assumption was that only 2% of it. But there are companies now, several companies that want to use tampons as both a way for drug delivery, for pain relief, but also as a way to gather a microbiome sample um, to you know, be an indicator of vaginal health. Oh, wow. So, so it said that when they measured the tampon after removal, it had only 2% left. No, no, only, no, it had 98% left. Only oh, 2%. so only 2%. Okay. Yes. So that kind of goes back to this idea of bioavailability and yeah. right. How right. much, how much CBD is actually <laughs> necessary? Um, right. How much but, can that yeah. the biome, the microbiome absorb? Right. That's interesting. I, I don't think delivery through a absorbent tampon is the way to go, right? Because um, everything is moving, all the fluid is moving into the tampon, not not coming out of it. So yes. uh, I'm not sure, but certainly as a, a way to get a um, sample of the vaginal fluid, it's, it's probably okay, even though as Pam has keeps pointing out, you know, you're not supposed to be sending blood, you know, through the mail. So I, I don't know how that's working out, but you know, if there's a company that launched, I think it, what is it called? Jane Pam yeah. out of MIT. Yeah. Um, and I'm now you're gonna, I think it's called uh next gen Jane. Is that the right way? There's yeah, something like that, right? And, and now I, I, I had to, you know, to say this on the air because I'm not exactly sure, but yes, um, there there is a company that's based in San Francisco, but the researchers came from MIT and they are looking at um, tampons or the, the, the vaginal fluid that they can connect uh, collect from tampons as a marker for endometriosis. Um, so but I'm not sure they're asking people. I think they're using the tampon there as a mechanism for collection. They're not actually having people send them back through the mail. Um, and I think that there are a lot of new companies that are working in that direction and how they can collect vaginal samples. I mean, we we believe that you can probably, um, in the next 10 years, you'll be able to do qPCR tests at home or PCR tests at home to detect whether or not you have an infection. Mm-hmm where the science is going but that doesn't you know that's 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 beyond the cannabis therapeutic world yes i think i think it's related though and i think it's really important because it is an issue i mean i think it is an issue for women when you you do have pain or dis- vaginal pain or discomfort um and a lot of times it's yeast or candida or um bacterial vaginosis and you you don't know and you have to go to the, you have to go to the gynecologist and have an appointment so it's hard to get instant relief. So that seems to me, that seems like, you know, such a necessary evolution in the science. Yeah. Interestingly, Emily, that you say that because a lot of these companies now you can take the swab and you can send it in and they'll do, um, they'll do the testing for you. But as you would, you would know, and I know that if you think that you have an infection, 
you want to get the information and the remediation promptly. So having to send a test into a lab and then wait a week for it to come back. I mean, we see this in the labs. Cindy can probably talk about this more than I can. You can look at the plates and after 48 hours, you can see things are growing. So you, if you've got a, a pathogen, you don't want it to continue to grow. And I think you want that uh, diagnosis to be done quite soon. So, you know, I would always recommend that you go to your doctor and get the testing done right away if you think that you have an infection. But we've also done some work. We haven't talked about that that much with also candida. So we've been looking at how um, cannabinoids are affecting candida growth as well in the lab. Yes, I definitely wanted to ask about that. Um, and I would love to kind of actually ask on a, on a broader, maybe before we go there, um, Cindy, you had mentioned um, the you know application of antibiotics with CBD. Right. Um, and I am, I'm really interested in that too, because I think traditionally the, it's so complex, but, but I think traditionally, you know, the treatment for bacterial vaginosis has been antibiotics, which right. might kill the bacteria, but then can also, you know, kill the bad bacteria, but also kill this, um, good bacteria that we need. So I'm wondering, um, yeah, I'm wondering what that for, yeah, for bacterial vaginosis, is, could this be like a new innovative treatment? Um, that could kind of, you know, treat the the BV, but but also eliminate those side effects. Yeah, I I mean, I absolutely think that there's a very bright future for the co-application of antibiotics with CBD, particularly in the case of antibiotic resistant bacteria, and not just for women's health issues, but for other applications. And it's also in, in very interesting that they've seen the same effect for uh, chemotherapy-resistant cancer cells, that if they do a co-administration of the chemotherapy drug along with CBD, um, the cancer cells are rendered sensitive to the chemotherapy drug. And it's the same mechanism, the CBD is just rearranging the membrane, all those proteins and um, uh, channels uh, across the membrane so it allows the antibiotic to get inside the cell. So I think that's also just an incredibly fruitful area to be pursued and I'm sure some clever people are doing that. Um, and you know, I think historically the pharmaceutical companies are way more receptive with co-therapies than saying, yeah, your chemotherapy drug is no good. We should just be using CBD. If you do a, a co-administration, I think it'll have a longer um, uh, or shorter path uh, potentially through the FDA, of course, have to do extensive clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And was that, um, was that research looking at any particular um, form of cancer or just was it a general study? Um, yes, it was, but uh, right now I can't recall. Mm -hmm. um, and it was more than one uh, type of cancer. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's there's a company here in Boulder called Biolumix. Um, some scientists out of CU that uh, published this amazing study that demonstrated uh, 
how CBD intercalates into the membrane and causes all these downstream effects. And it's the best explanation with scientific backing to show how it is that CBD can have so many pleiotropic effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's interesting, and I think it will it will probably all be be related in some ways. But Pam, let's um, yeah, let's shift back to what to what you were talking about in re- regards to this CBD and the effect on on candida. Yeah, so that's just that's new work that we're doing. Um, but there's been some there's some findings in the literature that CBD is also an antifungal. So one of the things that we've been looking at is with these products is number one, you don't want to do any harm. Like you don't want to kill the beneficial bacteria of the vaginal microbiota. And you also certainly don't want to provide uh, a feast for any of the pathogens. So we've actually been able to show at this point, and again, all of our work is in vitro and nascent and this is the beginning phases that we do not think that CBD is something that enhances the growth of candida yeast. So it does, it opens up the possibilities for, for, as Cindy said, for co-applications. Certainly the drugs that are out there on the market right now that treat yeast infections seem to do better than the CBD, but that doesn't mean that they can't, it can't be used adjunctively. Um, So those are all areas that we think need exploration. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I'm wondering too, how, have you seen any products um, that have like contain probiotics and that the probiotics interact with the CBD, especially kind of when it's um, coming to the treatment of candida or yeast? So we've tested one product um, that contains a probiotic um, in it. And you know, we we have to do a lot more extensive research. Uh, but at this point, we didn't see that that product reacted differently in terms of helping the vaginal microbiota, the beneficial bacteria to grow in the lab. Um, But again, that was in the lab and it's one product and we have not tested a lot of probiotics in isolation. Um, I think that most of the research that looks at probiotics is using live probiotics as a introduction into the body. And some of them are done with um, vaginal microbiome transplants. I think there's a lot of work being done at the University uh, at Mass General in Massachusetts um, using vaginal microbiotic implants. Um, But we haven't really looked at the products, so to speak. And I think that that's, it's really interesting too, Emily, because when you think about it, you know, these products are, are they really live when you get them in your, I mean, that's another, that's a whole nother area of science, like taking a look at all these probiotics that are out there and actually doing the counts to see how much the bacteria actually exists in the product by the time it gets to the person, especially if they're not refrigerated. Right, Cindy? Um, Right. And and if people are taking them orally, uh, going through the harsh environment of the gut, you know, are they really ending up in the vaginal tissue? (laughs) Yeah, we don't know. That's a whole nother thing. We haven't even looked at that. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, because it does seem to me 
that um, personally, I swear by probiotics, like especially for, for digestion, but, but it seems that all of these elements are related too. like, are, are there any studies that indicate kind of, or, or, um, indicate the relate, discuss the relationship between gut bacteria and the vaginal microbiome? No. And, um, I think, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's, pretty remarkable how the microbiome has just bloomed in terms of popular articles, scientific articles, and it's, it's changed once again, you know, with the dogma, you know, thinking that so much of the human body is sterile. And now, you know, it's far from sterile um, that there are microbiomes in most tissues um, including tumors, which is like incredible. Like how do how do tumors pick up <laughs> these unique bacteria? Um, and and in some cases, the bacteria, it's it's commensalism because the bacteria are degrading the chemotherapy drugs. So um, you know, how does this all evolve uh, within the body? Or, you know, and it's like, is it, which comes first? <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Emily, when you talk about the literature, I mean, Cindy and I were just talking about a study that, that was just released in November of this year on um, the lactobacillus in the gut and how uh, disruption in lactobacillus in the gut can actually lead to overeating. And, you know, so these, that was a very interesting study. I'd be happy to pass that along to you. So I think that it, it's a lactobacillus, it's a different strain um, than in the vagina, but one that was actually similar to what's found in the vagina. But, you know, whether or not these probiotics actually populate the vaginal microbiota, if they're consumed, I, we just, we just don't know. I mean, I think another area of research for these vaginal swab companies is to take a look at people who have been using probiotics, uh, oral probiotics, and then do swabs, you know, track them over time. I think that's going to be a very, very interesting study to be done. Well, and <clears throat> there was an article this morning showing that the particular, um, microbiome in your gut can also <laughs> impact whether or not you exercise. <laughs> well, I don't have that one. Unfortunately, I need to get that. <laughs> so, I mean, that goes back, you know, to the connection with the brain. So it's so complicated. Um, I, you know, I think if anything, apothecary is, is raising awareness that there is so much we don't know, and there can be downstream consequences um, from using these products. And there are parallels between the feminine care product industry and particularly the CBD industry in that there's relatively little oversight or, or requirement for safety testing or for even revealing the contents of what is in the product. Mm -hmm. Yes, it sounds like it's, it sounds like so so much research, and there's still so many questions. Um, I wanna I wanna shift so we can make sure that we talk about some of these um, the THC and CBD like sex and intimacy products. But but before we go there, I'm wondering if you do have a recommendation with the current science and knowledge that you have 
for um, for women who are you know experiencing whether pain or vaginal irritation. Um, if you would recommend, if you would recommend any of these CBD um, products out there currently, or a co-application of um, you know one of these CBD products with a more traditional pharmaceutical medicine. Oh, I don't think we can go there yet. I think that's what Cindy and I are still saying is that okay. you know, so much research that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that, and I, we just keep saying buyer beware, you know, really look, I can say, I can, I think I could emphatically say right now, based on the, the, you know, the lab work that we've done is stay away from any product that has sodium lauryl sulfate in it. If you're going to use it internally, or even, you know, they now talk about the vulva microbiome. So when people are saying, if we talk to companies that make washes and they say, well, they're for the extern- they're ex- for external use. But the point is that there's a microbiome, as Cindy said, there's microbiome everywhere. And you don't want to disrupt the even the vulva microbiome because there's a whole body of research about how that is um, related to the urinary tract microbiome. So, you know, the things like people have said, you know, for many years, sodium lauryl sulfate was also used in these bath bombs. And I think, you know, going back many, many years, when my when my children were young, people were saying, please don't use a uh, bubble bath. It's not, it's not good for, for children. So um, I think those are the things that I would just say, kind of take a look at those and stay away from, from those. But other than that, I don't think that we can, the science is just too young to really say anything. And, and, and again, I'm not a, a scientist. I'm just an advocate. So I wouldn't even mm-hmm. add any of that at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, what that means is it's up to every individual to do their own experimentation. Um, and, you know, one lot of a product is not necessarily the same as the next lot of that same product. Um, let alone product to product, um, depending on uh, what is the active in- source of the active ingredient. I mean, they can just say CBD extract, but is that broad spectrum, whole spectrum? Is it water soluble? Um, so there's just a lot we don't know. And I would advocate for more regulation. I mean, I think that, you know, we're testing these products that um, he does at Clip and some of these other cannabis testing labs. We test for what is in the product um, in terms of microbials that you might find are um, problematic if you're inhaling them. But we don't test for how these products actually act on the body. And I think that's where, you know, the industry is, unfortunately, we just don't have that research. hmm yeah, that makes so much sense because of course, I mean, the primary, the primary concern is, are these safe? Like, do they cause more detrimental effects, which it sounds like some of these, these products do, but then of course the second and most important question is, are they effective? And, mm-hmm. and there's just so many elements here. Like, is it, you know, what is the bioavailability and you know, how, how effective are they at actually treating um, the problems and the the pain that people have? So um, definitely excited to keep following the research here. But I'd love to kind of talk about some of these sex and intimacy products. And I have seen these sold, um, you know, especially kind of as, you know, CBD, um, CBD, like almost like a CBD cream that you apply like on your, on your vagina. Um, uh, So I'm wondering what, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on these products based on the research? Okay. So I'm going to give you my thought today because I just saw this on the internet. 
Um, there's Dr. Jen Guntner. I don't know if you follow her, but she is uh, OBGYN. And she was looking, it was not a CBD product. It was another sexual wellness product. And it said you needed to apply it and massage it for 15 minutes. On, <laughs> on, 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 and it was going to give you an enhanced sexual experience. So the point is, if you know anything about sexuality, you know that applying a lubricated product on the vulva area for 15 minutes might actually give you a sexual experience. So what she, what she was saying is that, you know, if you're applying it and you're using it that way, it probably is effective. But is it the product that's effective or <laughs> the act that's effective? And I would say that that's where, you know, it, it's that's it's an intersection of uh, the, the research is being done on on female sexuality and also products and how we how we use them. So I thought that was a very interesting internet uh, lesson today that I got from Dr. Guntner. So, uh, you know, in terms of your experience, uh, I think that's it's, it's mechanical as well as product driven, so to speak. Yes, that makes sense. And um, Cindy, you had also mentioned earlier that there is some research indicating that THC can be anti-estrogenic. So, so if any of these products, like, and I do think I have definitely seen some of the, like the vulva oils or creams that um, do contain THC. Um, So, yeah. So what are your thoughts on those and and their safety? Well, I guess, you know, I guess it depends on the individual and the age of the individual and what, what the purpose of using it is, um, uh, you know, because as you're probably aware, there's been a dramatic drop in fertility across uh, the United States. Um, and California under prop 65 has actually listed THC for its um, effect on male fertility. Uh, so, you know, estrogen is, uh, plays a role in both sexes, uh, way beyond just, uh, the reproductive function. So the fact that we know THC has anti-estrogenic activity, I think should be a wake up call that there is a strong need for, uh, more research. Um, so, you know, if you're a young woman and you want to have a family, you know, maybe it's not the best product for you, but if you're older or you already have, you have your children, maybe it's not such a big concern, but it also goes back to this overarching issue of how long does this effect persist, uh, in the body following a single application is it just transient? Um, is it long-term? Again, we have no idea. We really don't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, we, we've spent most of this conversation really focused on the vaginal microbiome, but but I'm wondering if any of this research has um, potential applications for male physiology. For sure, for sure. Um, Right, um, sexually active women who have 
dysbiosis in their vagina are going to impact the microbiome of the penis and of the reproductive tract of the man. I mean, those studies need to be carried out, obviously, but, you know, it's just common sense. Obviously, this study from Africa did show that women who have lost the dominant lactobacilli species uh, are more likely to become infected with HIV, and then they're going to pass that on to their sexual partners. If you um, if you lose the dominant lactobacilli species in in the microbiome, is there a way to get that back, or is that? Yeah, I mean, there, there are mainstream pharmaceutical companies uh, that are working on developing probiotics to reestablish that. How effective they are, I don't know. Um, but something like 40% of women have dysbiosis. So this is no small issue. And Pam, you have the statistics, right, on how much money is spent? Um, yeah, it, 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 it's 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 Oh, it's a billion dollar, four point eight billion dollar industry for the curing of, yeah, for treating it, treating it every year, and that doesn't include the downstream effects of what happens in, like, the U.S. I think it's estimated to be a twelve billion dollar healthcare spend because people who have vaginal dysbiosis and have bacterial vaginosis are also susceptible to preterm birth, and as Cindy said, HIV infection, um, all kinds of downstream infections. So, and, and other implications. So, so what we really are trying to say is, you know, make sure your vaginal microbiome is not in a dysbiotic condition or but remains healthy. And to this point, um, as Cindy said, there are companies that are looking at probiotics for um, the relief of bacterial vaginosis or to repopulate the vaginal microbiome. But they're they're not there these products aren't on the market yet and i think that as i pointed to before some of this research that's being done at um, mass general in boston dr caroline mitchell they still are looking at these implants of that vaginal microbiome implants so we keep saying or i keep saying it's really important not to mess with the good stuff that's there already because getting the good stuff back is a lot harder you know it's kind of like the same thing they tell you with the old adage of weight loss like you know it's a lot easier to gain the weight than it is to take it off. You know, so like, why do we want to mess with something that's healthy to then try to make it healthy again? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, of course. Obviously, there's a big educational component here uh, for the general public on the microbiome. And I think, Emily, this is all new stuff. I mean, like Cindy said, we looked at the literature and we saw that, you know, there a lot of this, there's a, there's a woman also that uh, is very big in a um, ovarian cancer company right now. And she talks about 90% of the science staying in the lab. And I would say that that is very true here is that there have been, there has been research, as Cindy said, going back many years, but a lot of it hasn't been brought to the forefront of, of the public. And then again, with the whole cannabis revolution is that these products are untested, unregulated, and really under-researched. And that's what we need to do is make sure that people know that you should be healthy and you should be looking at the products that you're using and you should be taking your information from the science and not so much from the marketing. Because, you know, we all fall um, fall for those great 
flashy marketing statistics and ads and, you know, make your life better, but really behind it, get to peel back the onion, so to speak, and look at, well, what is the science really telling you? And is there any science? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it, it is so complex too. I, I think, I mean, it, it does make sense that so much of the science has hasn't made to me personally hasn't made it out to to the general public but i i think also there i'm not sure that um like like when i have gone to the gynecologist and stuff i i feel like normally um the the traditional treatment for for a lot of things was either you know an antibiotic or a um or like you know an, an antifungal um which you know those were the only two those were like the only two treatment options for like common you know vaginal infections like um bv or um, candida. So, so, you know, and it feels like now we're kind of finding out that there, you know, there, there are side effects of taking a lot of antibiotics over your lifetime. So yeah, I just think it's so important that it gets this, this kind of research is available to, to the general public, but also, also within the medical field. Yeah, I agree with you, Emily. And I think that that's what Cindy was saying is if we can show that these, that these certain, um, parts of cannabis, you know, CBD or THC or CBD, or CBN, things in isolation, they, I believe that they do have promise as novel therapeutics for a lot of things. It's just that we need the research. Mm-hmm. And as Cindy said, it's not, you know, like broad spectrum. We don't know, like, does we've tested CBG, CBD, THC. So we know that there are a lot of other cannabinoids and we know there's a lot of terpenes. So when you're looking at a broad spectrum product or a, a full spectrum product, what are the terpenes? We haven't tested all the different terpenes. We don't know um, what they do. So there's a lot of research left to do, but I do think that there's a lot of promise as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did want to, I did want to, I know we're running out of time here, but I did want to ask about terpenes or other compounds. Do you have plans in the future to um, to look at any of, of these and, and the impact on the, the microbiome? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and just like, Several of the cannabinoids, several of the terpenes are also uh, reported to have antimicrobial activity, like like uh, limonene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it's interesting. I feel like we're circling back to some of the the things you talked about in your um, first episode, Cindy. The bioavailability, um, yeah. the that the you know promise and antimicrobial effects of of terpenes. So yeah, so that'll be interesting to see how it affects this particular right. area of research. Yep. Um, yeah. But before we wrap here, wrap up here, is there anything, anything we missed or anything else you want to tell us about the work of Apothecare or how can people, how can listeners learn more about, about your research and about your work? Um, well, we have a website, <laughs> uh, www.apothecare.com. Um, you know, we're on LinkedIn under Apothecare or Pam Miles. Um, we are constantly, um, updating uh, the list of products and, and the compounds that we've tested, and th- so that's and we we just like I said, Cindy, we Cindy and I want to make sure that we um, just get the message out about testing. How much more research and testing is needed? Um, and we're we're here to do that, or to facilitate that, or to advocate for that type of thing. And and again, for novel therapeutics, I think that we're we're going to see over the next five to ten years a lot. Of pharmaceutical products that are going to contain cannabis molecules. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we, you know, we're striving to develop this database of safe ingredients when it comes to the vaginal microbiome. 
Right, because there isn't one currently. Like, for instance, the sodium lauryl sulfate or some of these other ingredients. Like, okay, if you if you have the inclination to want to use an intimate care wash, is there a product on the market that doesn't contain that that might be safer for you to use? And that's what we'd be, like to just be able to inform manufacturers um, of a list of compounds that we've tested that are safer to use than others. Yeah, and hopefully reach the next generation so they don't fall victim to the advertising of these unnecessary intimate care products. Right. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that was my thought as well when when you said that because it se- it seems almost like um, that that there has to be like a shift in the public. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just like the public knowledge. Whereas I I think. And, and, you know, and this comes back, to, I think this comes back to almost like, um, you know, the way patriarchy and that the way that research is is funded. But but there was almost like this marketing campaign that the vagina is something that's dirty and needs to be washed and it needs to be sterilized. And I think that's what caused the success of a lot of these um, right. washes. But but now it feels like there is a shift in, in thought where it's like, no, you're you're the vagina is self-cleaning and itself can take care of itself. And it's not necessarily, you know, like a lot of these products the washes to me just seem like a scam. Yes. Yeah. And actually Cindy and I went to the vagina museum in London and we, it, it goes through the history exactly of what you're saying, Emily, is that there was uh, it's kind of rooted in, in, in a patriarchal uh, tradition that, that you, you have to be clean and smell like roses. And, um, but that's certainly not true, but but where you and I and Cindy are talking about this and we're hearing this, there are a lot of other cultures that aren't hearing that same message. And when we were at the Femtech lab in the UK, we heard that loud and clear from some of our um, uh, cohort members from places like India or even Eastern European countries where douching is still often used um, or even you know other things like bleaching. Um, so it's the message is is not a worldwide disseminated message right now. I think some people in the in 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 the U.S. are getting the message, but still, there's there's a lot of money that's being made on these products, and um, it, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. No, no, and only two percent of all funding goes to femtech initiatives. And 90% of all funding decisions are made by men. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, who's at the, who's at the helm of these, these big companies selling yes. these products. So <laughs> who's making the money? Yes. We've had some experience with some of those men. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> oh, so. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for giving us some exposure to this interesting topic. Uh, it's fast, but um, so worthwhile for people to know about. Yes. Thank- in the cannabis industry. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, thank you so much to both of you. Yeah, I think this is so this is so fascinating and just such important research. And yeah, I really hope I really hope to um, that this knowledge and this research just just gets out there um, more and more. Thank you, Emily. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit 
dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.